Hello and welcome back to the History of India podcast. This is series 5 episode 11 by taking two umbrellas. So we're floating high above North India. The broad plains spread out beneath us. It's 774 AD. We look to the east and there the new Pala kingdom has started to spread itself out. This was a kingdom that was founded only a few decades ago, starting in Bengal, where, where the Ganga meets the sea, and now spreading upstream, up the Ganga, as it goes founding new towns and, and cities and building new monasteries. Then we look to the west. About a generation ago, far to the west, the Umayyad army had come through. We heard about that in the previous couple of episodes. And they wiped out the patchwork of smaller dynasties that had covered that area. But now the Umayyads were gone. And one of the kingdoms which had beaten them in battle had taken over the chaos that they left behind. They were the Pratiharas of Ujjain. They're the new power of the region. They're not quite as new as the kingdom over to the east, but they're only a couple of generations old or so. And now we turn our heads and look straight down. Down there, on the Ganga, a little bit upstream from Pataliputra, is the city of Kanyakubja, the city of hunchback maidens. This was the city that Emperor Harsha the Great made great. This was the city of Emperor Yashovarman. It's become the political centerpiece of North India. The throne, if you like. Whoever controls it has mastery not only over large stretches of river, they have mastery over the ultimate symbol of being an emperor. And both of our new kingdoms, to the east the Palas, to the west the Pratiharas, both of them want Kanyakubja badly. Both of them are reaching out their lands towards it. We're headed for a clash. And the story of what follows is one of my favourites. It's told through the inscriptions that the kings left behind. And we're going to be telling it over the next two or three episodes. In this episode, we'll tell the first round of the fight between the Palas and the Pratiharas. And at the centre of this tale, or maybe not the centre, but sort of bobbing their way through it, are two umbrellas. And if those umbrellas could talk to us, they'd tell us a great tale. In fact, that's exactly the tale we're going to tell. So, first we'll head east and meet the new Pala king. Then we'll go west and meet the new Pratihara king. And then we'll hear about the first fight for Kanyakubja. Ready? Let's go. King Dharmapala, the spear-bearer. He sits on top of his horse. There are no real stirrups in India at this time, so he's bending his legs up, gripping the neck of the horse tightly with his knees. In his left hand, he clasps the reins, and in his right 
He's holding his spear, about to reach it back and then lunge it forward into his prey. Dharmapala's face is bulbous, fatty, long. He's got a, a long, straight nose, and at the top of it, narrow eyes stare down into his target. His hair's pulled back and tied in a knot behind his head. At least, that's how Dharmapala appears on the single gold coin that's come down to us. This is the young man who wants to transform Bengal into an empire. And that's a bold ambition, because Bengal's never really been the centre of an empire, at least not one that you could admire. For centuries now, Bengal's been swinging between chaos and then domination by outsiders. There's only really been one ruler from Bengal who really managed to control anything outside that territory. He was the only man from Bengal who'd so far done anything come close to earning the title emperor, that was Shashanka. He was the moon king we met in the last season. But Shashanka was hardly a good role model for young Dharmapala. According to the stories that Dharmapala would likely have known, Shashanka wanted to tear down Buddhism. And Dharmapala, he was the exact opposite. Dharmapala, he's a staunch Buddhist. In fact, his very name, Dharmapala, means protector of Dharma. And in his mind, that, that's exactly what he is. He's a, a protector of Buddhism and a protector of religion more generally. Shashanka was also a bad role model as an emperor for another reason. He didn't exactly flourish when he went abroad. He had tricked and murdered his rival, which is pretty cowardly. He had been beaten by his rival's kid brother, which is pretty humiliating. And then after that, all of his newly conquered lands, his would-be empire, had been stripped away from him. So Bengal hadn't done too well with emperors. But now, the time of this episode, Bengal is emerging. The language that they speak there in the modern times, Bengali, that doesn't exist yet, but already... The language in this region is splitting itself off, separating from the languages spoken in the rest of North India. And the political culture is starting to emerge too. This had really taken a step forward with Dharmapala's father, who had started out as just a sort of guy on the fringes, a kid on the edge of the world, at the borderlands where the forests of the Himalayas reach down to the valleys. And Dharmapala's father had started there but made himself king of Bengal by sheer pluck and adventure. And being king of Bengal actually meant being king of two separate lands. Because back in those days, people didn't think of Bengal as, as one territory. Instead, they thought of it as, firstly, Venga. Venga's uh, the region we get the modern name Bengal from. Venga, Benga, Bengal. Venga was a kingdom stretching along the coast where the Ganga meets the sea and up into what's modern-day Bangladesh. And then there was Gauda, which is a delicious cheese, but it's also the name of another kingdom in what's now northwest Bengal. And before Dharmapala's father had come along, these two lands tended to have been ruled by separate kings, and each would have had their own umbrella, 
not just for the rain and the sun, but because umbrellas were an important symbol that any king in North India should have, and in South India too, a mark of sovereignty. Dharmapala's father was popular enough to be elected king of some parts of the land, and he was a good enough warrior to conquer the rest of the land. And somewhere in between all of that charming and fighting, he became ruler of both Vanga and Gauda. And he seems to have inherited or got hold of both umbrellas. The umbrellas were decorated, according to later stories, with pictures of the goddess Lakshmi. So when Dharmapala's father died, the lands of Gauda and Vanga were passed down to him, along with a bit of territory that his father had conquered upstream in modern-day Bihar, and two umbrellas decorated with the images of Lakshmi. Dharmapala was not satisfied. He wanted many more umbrellas for his collection, many more kingdoms in his control. Dharmapala wanted an empire. And judging from his actions at least, he seems to have had his eyes fixed firmly on conquering the imperial city Kanyakubja, far upstream from the lands his father had passed on to him. So Dharmapala, together with his trusted Brahmin prime minister, started to lean against the western edges of his kingdom, pushing his army upstream, conquering further and further inland, heading for Kanyakubja. But disaster would strike before they ever reached it. They would be defeated not once, but twice, and the story of the umbrellas would take a turn. Far off to the west lay the city of Ujjain. Since ancient times, it had been a hub of commerce. But it was also very important for warriors, because it was the major city in the crossroad lands of India, the land through which armies had passed for centuries on their way from the south to the north or from the west to the east. For centuries, the great battles of India had been fought in these lands, and Ujjain was the fortified city at the heart of all of that. By around 780 AD, the king of Ujjain was a young lad called Vatsaraja. Trying to get a picture of Vatsaraja is a little bit tricky, because there are no pictures of him on his coins, or anywhere else for that matter. Now in modern India, some people uh, picture Vatsaraja and his descendants, the Pratihara kings, as wearing a sort of weather-hardened face. A fine, twirly moustache with a turban on top and maybe a a thick cloak on their back. That image, though, that's from later times. And it's pretty unlikely that Vatsaraja looked anything like that. Because no one in the art from his time and his place does look like that. It just wasn't the look. Instead, in the art from that time, both gods and men are portrayed as something much closer to the, the Gupta image than this modern Rajput twirly moustache image. So they're depicted as having large earrings and and pursed lips and chubby cheeks and flowing locks. So no one knows exactly what Vatsaraja looked like, but I reckon we can still get a little bit of a sense of the man. On his coins, there's no picture of him hunting, there's no picture of him at all, there's just a huge elephant trundling on his way to war. And 
That elephant represents the king, because that's what some people called him, not Vatsaraja, but war elephant. In some ways, that's more evocative than a picture. It gives a sense of how Vatsaraja wanted to come across to people, maybe how he did come across to people. Vatsaraja came from a family of warrior kings, the Pratiharas. And he came from the branch of the Pratiharas that was based in Ujjain. There were other branches further to the west and further to the south. The branch that was based in Ujjain hadn't been there for very long, perhaps. Probably that had been founded by his father's uncle. Or at least his father's uncle had been the one who had started a sizable important kingdom focused on Ujjain. Back then, the Umayyads had been invading, sending their armies all the way from Syria, and they had conquered lots of small kingdoms in the area. But Vataraja's father's uncle had defeated them. It's something he's still known for today. And it was quite an achievement. The Umayyads left the region and they never returned. And as the Umayyads retreated, he took over the lands that they left behind. Some of the small kingdoms that had been defeated were still in existence, and they now owed allegiance to the Pratiharas of Ajayan. Others had just been wiped out, and the land just became part of an expanded kingdom, focused in Ajayan. Actually, though, since that rapid expansion of the kingdom, things hadn't gone too smoothly for the Pratiharas of Ajayan. It wasn't an uninterrupted line of victories. Even in Vatsaraja's father's uncle's time, there had been some low moments. A king came from the south, the Rashtrakuta king, for those keeping track. Actually, he wasn't even a full king in a sense. He was a subordinate king, an underling of a southern empire. But even this underling had been powerful enough to take Ujjain, apparently without a fight. Vatsaraja's great-uncle had been made a joke of. The family name was Pratihara, which means doorkeeper. So when the southern king undertook a ceremony in Ujjain, the great creator egg ceremony, the great-uncle Pratihara was made to tend the door, along with a few other minor kings a doorkeeper on the outside whilst the celebrations were being carried on within. Humiliating stuff. And since then, well, nothing much had happened on the political front. Three more kings had followed. We know their names, but there's no point even saying them because we don't really know anything else about them. Even Vatsaraja's own father is just a name with some fine but vague compliments attached to it. So things had started well for the Pratiharas of Ujjain, and they'd just about stayed where they'd started. But like his rival to the east, Vatsaraja had ambitions. He'd inherited this kingdom from his father, good kingdom, covering strategically important areas. He'd also inherited some of eastern Rajasthan, which is, anyway, the more fertile part of that land. But he wanted more. He wanted an empire for himself. And he'd probably had some military victories already, maybe even before he became king, but certainly when he was young, attacking some Arab forces who were still firmly placed on the edge of India. And now he turned his forces to attack the famous Bundy Kingdom. Well, I, I say the famous Bundy Kingdom, but 
you've probably never heard of them because no one has really. They're called in the inscription the famous Bundy Kingdom, but it's the only time we, we hear of them. One historian thinks that the Bundy Kingdom is just another name for Vanga, the, the king of the East Dharmapala. But the only reason really is that Bundy sounds a little bit like Vanga, which is a stretch, I think. Other historians think that the Bundy Kingdom was founded by Bundy, which is uh, the name of Harsha's best friend from last season. And again, the only real reason they have for thinking that is that they share a name, though at least they share, they actually share a name. Really, all we know is that Vatsaraja defeated some kingdom that was considered important at the time, and he took that kingdom. He burst right through its seemingly invincible wall of elephants, is what the inscription says. And after he burst his way through, he made his way onwards towards the imperial city, towards Kanyakubja. So, the grounds for war are set. In the west, Dharmapala. In the east, Vatsaraja. Both heading towards, in the middle, the imperial city of Kanyakubja. Their final goal. By this point in Indian history, armies were dominated by cavalry and archers. Chariots were long gone. They hadn't been effective for centuries. Hordes of archers are mentioned, though, in the inscriptions really quite a lot, on all sides. There are plenty of war horses. That classic image of the Rajput on his horse has got that much right. Actually, though, war horse technology at this time wasn't quite as perfect as it would become in later centuries. Stirrups are a really important part of war horse technology. They really help you steady yourself as you loose your arrow or you, you brace your spear. Now, some sort of stirrup had been introduced to India centuries before, back in, in the time of the Kushanas. But they can't have been that good because they didn't stick around for all that long. By the time of the Guptas, a couple of centuries after that, it wasn't used much at all. And by the time of this episode, there's no trace of that old stirrup whatsoever. Instead, horsemen balance themselves and their horses by gripping their knees against the horse. They didn't even have a stable arched saddle to keep themselves from rocking back and forth. Instead, there were just a few rugs over the horse's back. And all of that would have made a considerable distant difference to how effective these horsemen were. Maybe even more importantly, though, was the fact that the horses were unshod. There were no metal horseshoes nailed into their hooves, and that would have slowed their charge, especially after a long campaign. And there were elephants in the armies too, of course. The elephants appear always front and centre in the inscriptions. It's not altogether clear, though, how many elephants were actually in each army. Elephants are impressive-sounding things and, and symbolic too, of, of sort of immovable power. There's a reason why the King of the West called himself the War Elephant. And the inscriptions talk about armies having hundreds of such war elephants, sometimes even thousands but that might be a little bit of an exaggeration. There may have been the odd siege weapon in use, like catapults. More precisely, mangonels. These are simple-style catapults, and maybe not perhaps what you might imagine. 
There's no sort of winding down, lowering of the catapult, slowly loading it up and then suddenly letting it go. There's no counterweight on one end. Instead, what you have is the catapult arm, about as big as a, a catapult from a siege, you might imagine. But instead of a counterweight, there's a bunch of ropes on the other end. And when the catapult is ready to launch, each rope is pulled by several men all at the same time, launching the rocks or whatever you loaded into the catapult at the enemy. So these mangonels are pretty simple things, but they'd been used really quite effectively by the Umayyads in their invasions of West India, and they might have been adopted by their enemies. And in fact, their enemies might even have picked other siege weapons, particularly Napta, that's a Greek fire, the liquid that burns unceasingly. Although we've got no definitive evidence that they did pick up this technology. Dharmapala and Vatsaraja's armies were ever reaching towards the imperial city of Kanyakubja. And they seemed to have reached there almost at the same time, because they clashed somewhere in the Doab, that's somewhere in the lands between the Ganga and the Yamuna rivers, south of Kanyakubja. We don't know how the battle unfolded, but we do know that there was a clear winner. In fact, we know that it was an easy victory. Even their enemies said so. When the dust cleared and the horses had fled, it was Vatsaraja, the war elephant, the king of the West, who stood victorious. Dharmapala, the defeated king of the East, fled, heading for the Ganga, which would take him home. And he was pursued by Pratihara forces, according to, to later documents at least. One of the subordinate kings chased him for days, going far to the east, into Gauda, into Venga, so far down that the river became salty as it approached the sea. And Dharma Pala seems to have fled quickly, carrying as little as possible, leaving anything that he could behind. And in amongst his luggage that he left on the battlefield, Fatsaraja found some important items, including two umbrellas with the image of Lakshmi on them, the symbols of lordship over Gauda and Venga. The umbrellas had a new master. For some reason, it seems that Vatsaraja stopped short of taking the imperial city of Kanyakubja for himself. Although, I'm not at all clear on, on why or even whether this happened. Maybe he thought that it was just too much of a distance from the centre of his power in Malwa, in Ujjain. Maybe he intended on taking the city for himself a bit later. He simply didn't have the time to take it now. One of his tributary kings who was with him seems to have installed a local fellow on the throne. One of the Ayujas, as they're called, a man called Indra. All of this, though, is terribly uncertain. I mean, Indra was king of Kanyakubja for a bit, and he probably was installed by one of Vatsaraja's underlings. But the timing of all this is confused, and the motivations are murky, and that's because, at the moment of Vatsaraja's greatest victory, he suddenly lost almost everything. We've met the rulers of the two great kingdoms of North India, Dharmapala to the east, Vatsaraja to the west, but there's another great line of kings in India at that time. A familiar name, for Vatsaraja at least. These 
were the kings who had humiliated his famous great uncle, made him stand waiting on the door. These were the rushed recruiters. And in the couple of generations since that humiliation, the rushed recruiters had just grown in power. Now they were independent and they ruled the vast majority of the Deccan Plateau. They were, in effect, the masters of South India. According to an Arab list, the Rashtrakuta king was the fourth most powerful king in the world. And he had an army that seemed unstoppable. And at this time, the Rashtrakuta king was a man called Dhruva. And Dhruva, like his eastern and western rivals, seems to have had his eyes set on one thing. The imperial city of Kanyakubja. The Rashtrakutas were great fighters and, and tough kings. And Dhruva was a better fighter and a tougher man than most. We'll spend an entire episode in his company at some point. But for now, the thing to know about him is that he was never really meant to be on the throne. He had won it by finding his brother, the king, and killing him. And then killing anyone who supported him. And on and on until he was left alone. This was not a man to be messed with. And soon he had the Deccan under his control. And he turned his eye to the next challenge, conquering North India, taking the imperial city. Dhruva and his army pushed through the Vindhya hills who blocked the Deccan off from North India and then exploded across the plains of North India, a sort of flash that wiped out the political and military victories that reset everyone's progress to zero. The analogy of a, a game which you score is pretty distasteful when you stop and think about it, but it does seem to be almost how these guys thought about these things. Dhruva first set his eyes on Ujjain, the city at the crossroads of India, the strategic fortress, and he conquered it. And in truth, that doesn't seem to have been an easy battle. Later records from the Pratihara side have the Westerners winning the battles, telling of glorious victories against the Southerners. They tell about how Vatsaraja not only beat the Rashtrakutas, but took his army down all the way to South India, how they drunk the water of the Southern Ocean. And when they drunk it, they found that it had no taste, no bitterness. It wasn't salty, which makes you think that they didn't reach the Southern Ocean at all. They just found a, a large lake and stopped. These later Pratihara inscriptions tell of how Vatsaraja Pratihara made the southern king's army fly away and that how when they fled, they seemed like tears streaming down the southern king's face. And all of that might be true. We've got no record saying anything else. But we do know that Vatsaraja Pratihara, king of the east, ultimately lost. Almost certainly, Ajayan was taken. The eastern half of his kingdom fell, and he was pushed back west, away from the centre of his power, further away from the imperial city which had come so close to having within his grasp, and then out into the desert. The war elephant had become a camel. That's a, a Sanskrit pun, by the way. The Vatsaraja called himself War Elephant, and one of the Sanskrit names for camel is Marudvipa, which is literally elephant of the desert, which is quite a lovely name for an elephant or a camel. 
Um, no apologies for terrible puns in this series, by the way. It's part of the Indian history experience. The kings of India seem to have loved these little plays on people's names themselves, forcing the old Pratihara king to be a doorkeeper. It's another great example of this, or leaving a description about how Emperor Harsha was made unhappy, but Harsha means happy. Okay, fine. It's a little bit less funny when you have to explain the translation, but it's all part of the experience. Since we're almost on the topic, by the way, another Sanskrit word for camel is maropriya, which means something like darling of the desert, which I think is even more lovely. In the Pratihara kingdom, it was sometimes said that Sanskrit is a harsh language, maybe a bit like we think German is today, and that the other language, Prakriti, is much more melodious. But I've never found Sanskrit harsh. So, Vatsaraja, king of the east, was beaten back to the deserts of Rajasthan. He seems to still have had a sizable kingdom there, on the edge of the desert. This was the land that his forefathers once ruled, the first Pratiharas. And there are still inscriptions you can find in towns and villages up and down the edge of the desert that mention him, that mention his rule. And there's an important Jain work composed in a city in the south of the desert that mentions his kindness to his friends, his fierceness to his enemies. But the truth was that Vatsaraja had been pushed basically out of his kingdom. And he had left much behind him, the great city of Ujjain, and somewhere within that city, two umbrellas with the picture of Lakshmi on them. The Rashtrakuta king found them and took them. The story of the umbrellas had taken another turn. The Rashtrakuta king, Dhruva, pushed on. He faced up to Dharmapala, the king of the east, and he defeated him. It would have been a fairly easy victory, I suspect, because Dharmapala had already been soundly beaten by the guys that the Rashtrakutas had just thrashed. And so the southern king had cleared the grounds of war, defeated the eastern king and the western king, and there was no one really left to oppose him, even defeated a few other guys who were hanging around. So there was nothing left to stop him, nothing between him and the imperial city. But before he reached the city, he stopped his advance. He turned his army around and he went back home. And that's where we leave the story, for a week at least. The king of the west thrown back into the desert far away from the imperial city. The king of the east defeated not once but twice, also thrown far from the imperial city, driven back to his heartland and the coast. And both of his umbrellas heading back south in the hands of the man who'd thrashed them both. But with the retreat of the southern kings, opportunity will rise once again. Before long, one of the kings of the east or the west will finally take control of Kanyakubja and become supreme ruler of North India, establishing an empire that will last generations. Which one will it be? East? West? That's a story for the next episodes.
Every week we read something from the original sources, and this week I thought I'd read an inscription of Vatsaraja's great-grandson, Bhoja. Bhoja's nowadays much more famous than his great-grandfather, but it will come to him in a, in a few weeks, I guess. He wrote an inscription near modern-day Gwalior. It's an interesting thing. first couple of lines are written in these nice, crisp, clear letters. The rest of the lines are really a bit shabby. But it tells the story of the Pratihara family of Ujjain. And it goes like this. Om. Adoration to Vishnu. May the dark blue body of the energy of Naraka protect you. That body which shines like the sky, kissed by the disks of the sun and the moon. It is illuminated by the white lower part of the Nagashesha used as a bed. And it's made crimson by the brilliancy of the jewel glittering on its breast. Just as a fresh seed taken from a fruit in a garden, and in natural fertile soil grows bulbous roots of a superior kind, from which spring forth kalpa trees, so was born the sun from the particle of light, by the energy of demons from self-delightedness and sown by him in soil well qualified by nature. It's the root of all that is good, and from the sun, again, a line of kings such as Manu, Ikshvaku, Kashusta, and the first Prithu. In their race, in the family in which Vishnu set foot Rama, of auspicious birth, carried on a war of destruction and slaughter with the demons, dire on account of the adamantine arrows which killed Ravana. All praise unto his younger brother Lakshmana, a stern rod of chastisement in war with Megananda, the destroyer of Indra's pride, who served as the doorkeeper of Rama, owing to his commandment not to allow others to enter. In that family, which bore the insignia of Pratihara, doorkeeper, and was a shelter of the three worlds, King Nagabhatta appeared as the image of the old sage, in a strange manner, inasmuch as, having crushed the large armies of the powerful Mlecha king, the destroyer of virtue, he shone with forearms brilliant on account of the glittering terrible weapons. His brother's son, who added to the renown of the family and had well-known name Kakushta, but who, on account of his habit of saying welcome things in an inverted manner, was known in the world as Kakuka, one who always laughs, was a paramount king. Then was born his illustrious younger brother, Devaraja, who performed the same task as the great wielder of the thunderbolt. For he curbed a multitude of kings by having destroyed their powerful allies and caused them to cast off their free movements. Indra also curbed a multitude of mountains by destroying their powerful wings and thus caused them to cast off their movements. His son, King Vatsaraja, whose compassionate towards the entire world he had subdued and resembled the sun in prowess, revealed himself by attaining his own kingdom which rivaled the mountain Udaya. His riches too, highly fragrant, by reason of the flavour of the wine of elephant ikur, and shining in company of the needy, appeared exceedingly beautiful, having eclipsed the lotus-eyed women, who too became exceedingly merry by having tasted wine which was like ikur of elephants, and appearing charming in the fond embrace of their lovers.
With strong bows as his companion, he forcibly wrestled the empire in battle from the famous Bundy clan, hard to be overcome by reason of the rampart made of infuriated elephants. Having successfully wielded a position weighty with renown, that's Batsaraja, the foremost among the most distinguished Xatriyas stamped the noble race of Ikshvaku with his own name by virtue of his blameless conduct. The primeval man was again born to him. And the rest of the inscription would ruin the story. That's pretty much it for this week. A couple of uh, quick notes. So the story of the two umbrellas is a little bit unclear, certainly less clear than I've presented it here. I presented the version that you get in the earliest inscriptions. If you turn to inscriptions a couple of centuries later, the stories are a little bit more muddled. Different people get the umbrellas. In one case, two different kings each have an umbrella of their own, and it's all a bit of a mess. In fact, the whole part of this story is a bit of a mess, and that's because we know it not from any narrative describing what happened at the time. There's no one sort of storybook. Instead, we're piecing it together from different inscriptions. That makes the order of events very hard to work out. In fact, every single historian seems to have a radically different order of events. No historian follows the order that I've given here exactly, although this order is at least consistent with all the known evidence, including the evidence that's come to light more recently, as far as I can tell. It seems to me most likely, and it combines the, the best insights of the best historians. Now, that really is it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details on the website. A big thank you to those who have donated to that, um, and apologies to those who, whose letters I haven't yet responded to. I'm going to get to that hopefully before this episode comes out. Until next week, have a great time, and take care. <laughs>